This is Brand Story, a podcast featuring in-depth conversations with leaders, marketers, and brand storytellers about their professional journey and the impact they're making on the world around them. Welcome to Brand Story. I'm your host, Steve Gilman, and today I have a special episode of the Brand Story podcast for you. We're going to do a look back at season three and share some of my favorite moments, and uh, I'm going to go ahead and jump right in. So enjoy. Season three kicked off with a very special guest returning to our podcast, Mita Malik, head of inclusion, equity, and impact at Carta, and co-host of the Brown Table Talk podcast. Mita came back on to talk about the launch of her new book, Reimagining Inclusion, Debunking 13 Myths to Transform Your Workplace. You have another example from Myth One, and Myth One is, of course, I support Black Lives Matter. You know, why are you asking if I have any black friends? You had talked about having to help, or not having to, being asked to help a leader do posts for Black Lives Matter. Can you talk about that a little bit? So this is working with a white leader who identified as a man, and he really wanted to show his support uh, for Black Lives Matter and social media. And this was an executive I was working with. And he was getting frustrated because on how to technically use social media, but then also what he was going to post. And and then what he shows me, and I won't do the spoiler alert, it doesn't make sense that he would post this. And I said to him, well, have you talked to your Black friends and colleagues like on how you can be showing up as an ally? What would they think about you wanting to show up this way in social media? And he gets really annoyed and he's like, why are you asking if I have any black friends. Like, that's not like, why are you asking if I have black friends? And I said, I, I didn't ask that question, but it goes to the fact, Steve, that, you know, most of us in, from a U.S. perspective are still self-segregating. And that's the really hard truth is that over two thirds of white Americans are self-segregating similar numbers for black Americans. And you start to think, wow, this work doesn't start at our conference room tables. It starts at our, at our kitchen tables, right? This is about how we're spending our time outside of work. And so how can you say that you support Black Lives Matter if you don't actually have meaningful relationships with Black individuals where I have, I always say, like, I'm on an ally to be a journey for the Black community. My Black friends will tell you and colleagues if I'm an ally. That's not for me to say. But I also try to really invest in building meaningful relationships with people whose experiences aren't my own, knowing that I'll never fully understand what their life is like, but I'm, I'm trying. And so that's really the part that's missing for me. We want to take people through a four hour unconscious bias training at work. God, I hope no one's doing that, but it's like that, that's not the opportunity. The opportunity is actually starting in our communities. Yeah, I agree. I think it comes down, you know, you talk a little bit about how bias is so deeply ingrained sometimes that we don't see it. So by being with people who are different than us, we may start to actually recognize our biases and get to work with them a little bit. You don't get to really solve them. You don't get to just be like, oh, I'm better. I fixed it. You know, it's just a journey. And it really is a journey of empathy in a lot of ways because this stuff is really deeply ingrained. It is. You know, I also talk about in the book and I talk a lot now about, you know, as I'm trying to raise kind and inclusive human beings, and we all have little people in our life. The, the othering can start at home and we don't even realize it. So if I'm talking to my children and I end up using language about Steve, oh, he's funny, strange, weird, odd, awkward. And that becomes how we start to other and stereotype people. And that actually becomes the gateway to hate if we go to an extreme, because we start to just think about the language. And it's not that I mean anything by calling maybe Steve strange or weird or awkward, but 
there's something there in way I'm describing him and my children are picking up on it. Or if my children come home and say, oh, my classmate's weird. I'm like, well, tell me more about that. Why do you think they're weird? Like, let's not use that language. Like, everybody's a little weird. <laughs> everybody's a little, like, like, you know, what, what do we mean by that? And so I think that's really important too, the role modeling in our communities and starts in our homes. Our next moment is from an incredible conversation I had with Miyoko Skinner founder of Miyoko's Creamery. Miyoko is a successful entrepreneur, activist, and author. And in one of my favorite moments from season three, Miyoko talks about how we need to redefine success and happiness for both ourselves and our brands. You know, you've had a lot of success and not just monetarily. I mean, you've had success changing how people think. You've had success changing what can be said about products. So how do you even, def- you know, after going through all this and starting another venture now in your in your 60s and starting that incredibly uh, successful one in your mid-50s, how do you define success for yourself? Well, that's a really great question. Um, so I think we live in a country where we define happiness according to financial success. So we wake up every single morning not thinking, how am I going to be happy today or how am I going to help the world today? We wake up thinking, okay, how do I earn another dollar? How do I get ahead? How do I beat the competition? And we live in a world where we are all chasing what we call success. I think perhaps the question needs to be, how do I become happy and how do I help others become happy? How do I create a world that is that is better and and happy and that may not be in that may be in conflict with what we define as personal success so um i think we need to to reassess that we we also know that a lot of so-called successful people aren't necessarily happy the forbes 50 over 50 list that i'm on for example the whole forbes concept of what's you know we're always celebrating billionaires why are we doing that why is what a billionaire says more important than let's say a popper with a really deep thought. Why do we value, we basically value the lives of people with money more than we value the lives of those without. And that's just wrong. And we need to really redefine the value of a human being in a different way. I think, at least I hope, there are other people that agree, a lot of other people that agree with that and people that might be starting companies, that it's more about adding value and helping others. And it's not just about how much money you can make. I, I agree with you 100%. It's never for me been about how much money I could make and how much status I could get. It's adding value and then having a nice life to go with it. You know, Because when those two go together, you function better and you add more value. We all need to make a living, but we don't need to make a killing. The next guest I want to highlight is Dr. Marcus Collins, best-selling author of the book For the Culture and professor of marketing at University of Michigan. In this moment from season three, Marcus dives into how marketers and leaders need to start with the soul and end with the cell. And he expands on the idea that we are rationalizing human beings and what moves people to decision is not the rational, but the emotional. There's something you said in your book that it's a phrase, start with the soul and end with the cell. Yeah. Dude, can you unpack that a little bit? Because there's a few things you say in your book that I was just like reading it and I like out loud, I'd be like, damn. <laughs> <laughs> that so was one I, of them. 
so that 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 line comes from a guy named C.C. Chapman. He's a professor at Babson College, um, and and the idea is that what gets people to move is not the rational; it's the emotional. Right? If you look at the biology of decision making, the limbic system—that's uh, where the amygdala, the hippocampus—is uh, is is uh, located, and they are the stores of memories. They're the stories. They're stores of these memory structures that we have that are quickly evoked when uh, they are catalyzed. Yeah. And what we know of the biology decision making is that our feelings are associated with the same part of the brain as our behavior. And we know that intuitively because we call that intuition. I just felt it in my gut. I just felt it. It didn't feel right, so I didn't do it. It felt like this was the move, so I jumped. And it's hard for us to put emotions into words because emotions are not associated. I mean, emotions are associated with the limbic system, but words are associated with the neocortex. So articulation and linear thinking, logic associated with the neocortex. So you've got, as I was saying in the book, you've got like a Kirk brain and a Spock brain. Your Kirk brain is like, Marcus, let's just do this. And your Spock brain is like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Let's let's look at the data first. And we love to think of ourselves as Spocks. We want to be data-driven decision makers, but we ain't no Spock. <laughs> no, we're not. No. I mean, there's a spectrum for sure, but we sure. are far more Kirk than we are Spock, even the best of us. Um, we're rationalizing human beings. So if you want to get people to move, you activate the limbic system. Well, how do you do that? You start with the soul and end with the cell. You start with the emotional. You start with the evocative. You start with the things that resonate in people's uh, affects that make them feel a thing. And then you close with the rational so that they can justify these emotions that they have. They can justify the behaviors that they're going to take on uh, because what they feel, they have this linear logic uh, to to sort of uh, frame why they're doing a thing. A guest that I had so much fun talking with is visual storyteller and sketchnote artist Wade Forbes, who is the chief illustration officer at Redtail Communications. He and I had a blast talking about the power of visual communication. And in this moment, Wade talks about the very inventive techniques he uses to create visualizations in real time and how he develops a fast visual vocabulary. It's very emotional. Because, you know, what you're capturing from the drawings I've seen, even if it's a meeting, if you think of a corporate meeting being emotional, it's maybe not the first thing everyone would think of, but you're capturing impressions of what was being communicated. And that's different than a video. And that's different than notes. It's like a completely different world, you know, where you're capturing these these visual impressions that have emotional content and trying to translate that so that people can remember what it felt like to be there. So how, what's your process? How do you manage that? Because that's, that's a lot to try to do as fast as you do it. Thank you for appreciating that. I was trained by Stacy Hall, who has a company called Doodle Tunes, and another um, friend named Brian Torello, who has a company called Lizard Brain. And they teach you what a 10-minute Spider-Man looks like, a 1-minute Spider-Man, and a 10-second Spider-Man. Um, So like if I had to web you right now and I was turning my fist upside down with these two fingers tucked in and I'm webbing you, that might be all I get for my 10 seconds. And then I have to move on. So you over time get this visual vocabulary, which is really fun because 
in the right environments, you can teach these industries their visual vocabulary so that they can find that comfort, as you said a moment ago, or give themselves permission to start drawing those things out. And once you've done a hand a certain way so many times, or once you've done a face or a mouth yelling or a frown, or, you know, I, sometimes I'll do a, an emotion of a mouth that's open, either yelling something great or something mean or something frustrating, depending on what it is, you can get that done pretty quickly. And then it's just a question of, okay, wait, do the words and then draw the mouth around it. So the words don't spill out of the mouth. Like that becomes the hard thing. It's just doing things in the right order, getting the quote and then draw, and then leaving that space sometimes, going back to it later and putting lips on it is where things get really fluid. That is so cool. And I think what's fascinating about this art form is that you're sort of at the intersection of art and communication and helping people remember, you know, salient information from a meeting or from what would the reason they're gathering, but also leaving them with an impression of how it felt and what it meant. And the thing that I find fascinating about it, being a storyteller myself, is that I think people don't need as much information to remember something as everyone thinks they do. You know, usually what happens with communicators of all sorts is that we hit people with everything in the kitchen sink. And you don't because you don't have time. So you're catch capturing the essence and then trusting the viewer will get it. And I've yet to see one of your drawings that I don't immediately understand. So I'm not sure why all of us think that we need so much information to get something because we're pretty intuitive beings. Another accomplished marketer and author that I talked with in season three was Vanessa Patrick, Associate Dean for Research and Professor of Marketing at the University of Houston. We dove right in and started discussing her new book, The Power of Saying No. And in this fascinating moment, Vanessa talks about her bake your famous lasagna ask and the different kinds of asks we all face every day and how to feel more empowered when we need to say no. You cover this section about different types of asks. And I think it's fascinating because, you know, as people are listening to this or they start reading your book, I think they're immediately trying to process how does this happen to me? What is it that I'm responding to or that I get asked that I instantly feel like I have to say yes to? So can you go through a couple of these? One of those, the, the past the salt asks and the bake your famous lasagna asks. These are so fascinating. Can you go through a couple of these? <laughs> Absolutely. Happy to. Uh, I had a lot of fun developing this model because yeah, one of the cool. things that people kept asking me was, what do I, how do I decide what to say yes to and what to say no to? And to me, it really boils down to two key facets, which are the two dimensions of the model. The first facet is what you have to do. What is the effort that you have to put in, in terms of time, energy, and other resources? So what is the cost to you? So that's one dimension that you need to consider. The other dimension is how much benefit is your action going to give to the other person? How much do they need you, specifically you, uniquely you, to be able to do that? So benefit can be high and low, cost can be high and low. The uh, pass the salt asks are high benefit to others and low cost to you. Right. 
And essentially, if you think about it, you know, imagine you're at a dining table and there's a salt shaker sitting in front of you and someone just asks, can you pass the salt, Vanessa? And of course, you don't really, it's no effort on your part at all. You just pass it along the table. And it might be a game changer for them because they obviously needed salt for their meal. So for me, pass the salt asks, which are very low cost to me, but hugely beneficial for others, might be things that I would say yes to. Now, I also caution in the book not to fill your day with pass the salt yeah, asks. Right. Not to do only those. Because if you land up doing a whole bunch of things that are just low effort for you and high benefit for others, you might not have the most fulfilling life. The most dangerous ask, so the worst ask to get caught in, where you land up resenting the other person tremendously, are the bake your famous lasagna asks. They are ask where you are, you are requested to put in a whole bunch of effort for something that is going to have a very little impact. So essentially, it's like a friend hosting a party, a potluck party, and asking you, hey, Vanessa, you're so good at baking lasagna. Why don't you bake that famous lasagna of yours and bring it to your, the party? For those us, you have to pause and really figure out a way to say no politely. Those are high cost to you because it's very tedious to, to bake a lasagna. Yeah, it's a lot of work. <laughs> and it's not going to make a difference yeah. whether you took the lasagna or bought a party tray. I think it's important for us to use uh, a lens of cost and uh, cost to us and benefit to others to be able to filter which ask do I say yes to and which ask do I say no to. Yeah, I think we get caught in those big, your famous lasagna asks because there's this seed of recognition in it. You know, there's this seed of like, you're good at this and I like that. And we want it. We feel good and we want to say yes. Yes. And if you don't slow down, all of a sudden you're, yeah, you're baking a ton of lasagnas and spending your whole weekend slaving over, you know. And you resent the other yeah. person to no end. Right. I mean, I know people who have said to me, I spend so much time doing stuff I didn't want to do and half the other half of the time resenting the fact that I'm doing it. <laughs> That's no way to live. <laughs> and that is sad. It is. That's no way to live at all. And in this last highlight, I talk with the brilliant Will Gadara, restaurateur icon and author of Unreasonable Hospitality about his journey building the number one restaurant in the world. And in this moment, Will tells the story about his team's journey and how a simple hot dog helped forge a magic moment for some customers and inspired his effort to build amazing experiences. You know, after we got back from the 50 best, we started like exploring what unreasonable hospitality meant. And that, you know, a lot of trial and error, a lot of collaboration with the team, understanding that my role as a leader was to set the vision, but it was our collective responsibility to figure out how to navigate our way towards it. Um, we explored every single touch point in the guest experience. We interrogated the experience to understand it completely such that we could, in isolating every single interaction, then figure out how to elevate as many of them as possible kind of channeling the idea of marginal gains that if you if you increase every part of it just slightly the overall impact is transformational not to mention the fact that if you can find touch points in the experience that no one else has ever paused for long enough to consider and just make them a little bit more awesome it gives you an unfair competitive advantage but then one day 
I found myself in the dining room on a busier than normal lunch service and um, I was helping the servers and I was clearing appetizers from a table of four foodies who were on vacation to New York just to eat at restaurants. Um, and they were actually on their way to the airport to head back home after their meal. And I heard them just talking about all the restaurants they'd eaten at, per se, Danielle, La Bernadette, Momofuku, now 11 Madison Park. But then a woman at the table jumped in and said, yeah, you know what? We never had a New York City hot dog from one of the street carts. And it was like one of those light bulb moments. Um, so I ran back into the kitchen, um, put on, like dropped the plates, ran outside, got a hot dog, ran back inside. I was joked that I had to figure out how to convince the chef to serve it in our fancy restaurant, um, but eventually got him to. And we cut the hot dog up into four perfect pieces, added a little swish of ketchup and a swish of mustard, basically made it look super fancy, some sauerkraut relish. And then before their final savory course, which was at the time a honey lavender glazed duck that had been dry aged for two weeks, I brought out what we in New York call a dirty water dog. Um, and I explained it. I said, I want to make sure you don't go home with any culinary regrets. Here's that New York City hot dog. And they freaked out. I mean, like freaked out. And it was a, it was a moment of revelation for me because I'd served so much food over the course of my career, Wagyu beef and lobster and caviar and foie gras. And I'd never seen anyone react to anything I'd served them like they did to that hot dog. Now, it was a pivotal moment, not because it happened, but because I paused to consider what, in, what went into making it happen and then put a system behind it to ensure that that would continue to happen. And I think that's a really important distinction because I always say athletes go to the tapes and they've had a bad game to see what they did wrong. They don't often enough go to the tapes and they've had a good game to see what they did right. And I think that happens so often in organizations where there's these moments of fleeting brilliance, but people don't stop and grab onto them and hold onto them to ensure that they become a part of the fabric of the organization. And so I went back to the tapes and the hot dog and, and I talk about this in the TED talk. It was three things, being present, Meaning like slowing down enough to actually listen to the people around you. Two, not taking yourself too seriously. Whether you're talking about brand. I think brands are so important. They're your bumper stickers to the world. But I think in some companies, brands become like, it's almost like those like sci-fi movies where the robots like take over the world. Brands, if a brand starts to tell you what you are not allowed to do, to make someone else happy, someone that you care about, then the brand's role in your company has gotten out of control. Um, we can't let self-imposed standards get in the way of us giving the people around us the things that will bring them the most joy. And then three, this idea, you already said it earlier, if hospitality is about making people feel seen, the best way to do that is not to treat them like a commodity, but a unique individual, as unreasonable hospitality is one size fits one. Um, and my team, armed with the hot dogs, our new true north, and then those three things as the roadmap, started doing so much cool stuff. And that is ultimately, that was the unlock. Thanks for listening in today. And you can find the full episodes with any of these guests by following Brand Story on your favorite podcast platform. 
We have some incredible guests and inspiring conversations coming up in season four. So please tune in, get inspired and elevate your brand today.